reading from the prophet Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you. Triumphant and victorious is he. Humble and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off. He shall command peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Today I declare that I will restore to you double the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our epistle reading this morning is a reading from Paul's letter to the Romans, beginning um, toward the end of the seventh chapter. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inmost self, but I see in my members another law at war with the law of my mind making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched person that I am, who will deliver me, rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with my mind I am enslaved to the law of God, but with my flesh I am enslaved to the law of sin. Therefore... There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin, he condemned sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. To set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to St. Matthew. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Gospel of the Lord. As the children go out, I am very happy to introduce to you Sid Johnson, who is going to be preaching for us this morning. Sid is a student here at, uh, at the seminary. He's about halfway through, I think, with his seminary studies. Uh, he is the very happy and lucky and blessed husband of Shelby, and uh, we are so glad to have both of you here as part of our church family. Sid and Shelby recently uh, became confirmed within the Anglican Church uh, just a couple of months ago whenever the bishop was here with us. And Sid is in a process right now of discerning his call into ordained ministry within the Anglican Church. And so it is just a joy to have him here and to be able to bring the Word of God to us. As I've gotten to know Sid, uh, there are all kinds of things I could say about him. One of the things that really struck me again this morning as I was praying for you, Sid, is just, Sid is just one of these people who, he, he strikes me at least as guileless. There's just no guile in Sid. He is just straightforward with you and in, in an earnestness, an earnest love and a desire to follow Jesus and to be a blessing to his church. So with that, Sid, come and bring the Word of God to us this morning. We welcome you. Well, good morning. Uh, thank you, Father Rick, for that lovely introduction. You certainly spoke highly of me and... Uh, I thank you, um, but that was a bit much. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, but thank you all for um, just the church for giving me this opportunity to be before you, um, to be in such a loving congregation that um, really supports people who uh, are at the seminary and who are discerning this call to ministry. Uh, I felt that love over the past months, and I thank you all for it. So getting into our sermon today, I have a bit of a confession to make. That'll be a theme throughout the sermon. I've been a bit enamored with this gospel passage ever since Father Rick told me that I would have the opportunity to preach this homily, and maybe it's because it's a bit of a prayer and a proclamation. It has a bit of two things going for it. So often in the gospels, we're told that Jesus went off to pray. So it should capture our attention when one of his prayers is recorded and written down for us. My initial thought was to focus on the prayer at the beginning. I think uh, the heart of my confession is that I'm a bit of a contrarian, right? So uh, I never want to preach the popular parts of the text. So the famous parts, you know, of this, verses 28 and 30, uh, that's what I initially wanted to shy away from. But as I sat with it, I knew I, I couldn't avoid it. The, the depth of this passage is too great, and uh, it's nothing short of a summary of the gospel itself. One of the verses from our readings today uh, is Matthew 11:28 which is also one of the verses of Scripture that we read as part of our absolution after we confess our sins together as part of the liturgy. The liturgical description for it is the comfortable words. It's meant to bring us comfort in what Christ has done for us. And let me tell you, it's not a mistake that this verse is one of our comfortable words of absolution. Let's keep that thought in the back of our minds, because we're going to come back to that shortly. So I invite you to join me in walking through this gospel passage at the beginning of verse 25, 
I'm going the wrong way, I think. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> at the beginning of verse 25, we have an important phrase that we don't want to miss. He says, at that time, Matthew writes, that begs a question, at what time? I'm not going to try and impress you and then embarrass myself by getting into some diatribe about the Greek here, but I will say that all my years in seminary have taught me it's important to say a word about what happens leading up to this when we have a phrase like at that time. So we know what we're getting into when we study Jesus' words. So really quick, at the beginning of chapter 11, John the Baptist's disciples come to Jesus with a question. John is imprisoned, and he wants them to ask, are you the one? Jesus responds to this essentially, tell John what I've done and what I've said. Jesus then begins preaching again, first about how John, this crazy wild man in the woods, eating worms, he has nothing, he's humble, and he's greater than any on the earth. Then Jesus denounces unrepentant cities, like Jesus, to change the topic. I believe two important themes emerge from these stories that precede this gospel passage that we need to look at today. Humility and confession of sin, specifically absolution from sin. So looking at today's gospel reading, I mentioned that we ought to pay careful attention any time we see the words that Jesus prayed to the Father. Given how much they probably communicated, this is our rare glimpse to listen in to the things that Jesus says to the Father, see how the Father and the Son of the Holy Trinity communicate and what we understand to be a perfect relationship. And his prayer is one which, of course, models humility. Jesus says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. You know, this prayer kind of reminds me of the stereotypical movie Thanksgiving dinner. Like, have you guys ever seen one? You know, the matriarch or the patriarch is sitting at the head of the table, and they're about to bless the meal. And maybe all the children have come home for Thanksgiving. They have their spouses. Maybe the youngest daughter or son has brought their boyfriend or girlfriend. And you know the person praying just doesn't approve. And so they're about to throw some shade in the prayer. Lord, thank you for that you have given all of our children such wonderful companions, staring straightly at the person that they don't like. Kind of reminds me of that just a little bit. I don't think Jesus is beating around the bush. The so-called wise and understanding here, these aren't folks who are steeped in wisdom, as in the proverbial wisdom uh, that reveals God. In fact, they're steeped in worldly wisdom. The kind that the prophet Isaiah says, will perish. We know this because of the contrast Jesus gives us, because those who can perceive the wisdom of God are like little children, those who are humble, who are willing to be taught as children. We learn as Jesus prays that this wisdom cannot be discovered by human effort alone, but must be revealed by God. Wisdom personified is a theme throughout the entirety of Scripture. Wise men, we are told in Proverbs, are those who fear the Lord, who have knowledge of the Holy One, and are taught in righteousness. In Jesus' day, and to this audience, the Pharisees and scholars are the ones who are seen as capable of achieving this wisdom. You see, they were the Torah scholars with a full stipend to spend their time studying the Scriptures. I'm a little jealous. Yet, in this one sentence, one prayer... Jesus turns this whole assumption on its head and says it is actually the humble and lowly who will be exalted. He essentially gives us the Beatitudes, right? 
Blessed are the poor. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the little children. Humility is not found, and salvation is not achieved by human effort alone. It must be revealed by God. But who is Jesus to say these things to the so-called wise and understanding? Well, good thing he tells us. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. I think Zechariah from our our prophetic reading this morning says uh, something that is very helpful in understanding what Jesus is saying. Because Zechariah describes the one who is to come as your king, righteous, having salvation. He will be our ruler and restorer. Jesus is making it clear to us that he is the one who has the authority to act as a window to the Father. If you really want to see the Father, Jesus says, you can spend every waking hour searching and expiring to that next revelation in wisdom, that next degree, that next milestone, that next job opportunity, or you can look at me. Listen, learn, and imitate me. He says, and I have made a way so that anyone can do it. Listen, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's not be so quick to forget that amid this proclamation, Jesus just denounced unrepentant cities. How can this possibly be related? Well, I think Paul's words in Romans remind us of how dangerous sin is. It's death. However, when we think about how sin operates in our lives, I believe St. Paul really nails something that we often minimize in our understanding of sin. Yes, sin is a trespass or a debt, as we pray in the Lord's Prayer. But sin is also described in the scriptures as a burden. David acknowledges this reality in Psalm 38.4. He says, My iniquities have gone over my head and are like a heavy burden, too much for me to bear. And Paul describes it like this from our epistle reading this morning. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I think something we must realize about sin is that it affects us and burdens us even when we aren't the person to commit the sin. See, it's kind of like scars. that They remain on our body, and they're an ever-present reality that even for victims who have zero blame for the things done to them, the scars remain. In our present day and age, it's kind of unfathomable to, to say a victim needs forgiveness. It's not something we do. But that is exactly whom Jesus invites to receive his promise of, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. There may be someone here this morning who needs to hear this word. Someone has hurt you. You've been a victim. You've been hurt by no fault of your own. And you've been told your whole life, it's not your fault. Don't feel guilty. 
And I want to be clear, I'm not denying that. There are things that are not your fault. But don't feel guilty is not an absolution. It doesn't remove the burden. Absolution is a setting free. Think of it like this. Jesus uses the example of a yoke. And oxen and mules carry yokes. But the yoke they're carrying is the burdens of the one who owns them. It's never their own burdens. So what could it be that you are carrying for another person that isn't your own? Who owns a part of you that is not theirs to own? For another, you may share some of the blame for a burden of sin. And for all of us, there are things we have done that are burdens of sin. But my friends, this word of absolution that Jesus gives us is for all of us, but especially for those who are holding on to the guilt of a sin burden that is not their own. He goes on to say, again, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, I think some of us have been metaphorically plowing fields with the yoke of the law for a long time. The guilt can get really heavy. Maybe it is that we've been carrying the yoke for so long that we can't tell which parts were done to us and which parts we've done ourselves. But our hope here, in these words of Jesus, is a hope that recognizes there is a reconciliation that no human effort can achieve, but that God alone has done for us. No amount of law-abiding is going to bring us out of this sinful world clean from the effects of sin. But my friends, absolution being set free does, and it's needed. And that's part of why we practice confession and absolution weekly as part of our liturgy as we prepare to come to the table. And that's why we encourage it in the daily office, and dare I say that's why it's part of the Lord's Prayer, right? It's our model prayer together. So is it any wonder that this passage in Matthew here is one of the comfortable words that we hear in the Eucharistic liturgy, because it is our absolution. It is our being set free. I also believe that it is no mistake that in the Eucharist, we encounter the body of Jesus given for us. This revelation this week really blew me away, but this kind of idea that after we have confessed our sins and we've received absolution and we come to the table, we eat a body that has scars for whom he had zero blame to receive them much like us sometimes. I think Paul summarized what this means better than I can. He says, therefore, from our epistle reading today, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. A few weeks ago, uh, I had the privilege of visiting the Cathedral Basilica Basilica of the Assumption. Those two words are fun to say together. Uh, It's right up the road in Covington, Kentucky. My wife and I went with some friends uh, it's beautiful. This facade on the outside uh, is a facade of Notre Dame. Uh, it's replicated after it. Um, the picture really doesn't give justice of how big it is. 
Um, that's kind of the side entrance where you walk in. And that's some views from the inside when you first walk in. You see the baptismal font at the front. There's these stained glass windows that just bring in an, an incredible amount of light that you can't really perceive from a picture. Um, the, the artwork in it is so unique. It's this, like, gothic style, but it's contrasted with wood throughout of it, and you don't see that a lot in cathedrals. That's more of like a chapel look, um, but it's this contrast of, like, a, a, a chapel in a cathedral, and it's really beautiful. Um, these pictures show a little bit of the organ. There's two organs. They're really big, bigger than this one right here. That, that picture doesn't really give justice um, of what that is, and that's kind of a view from the pew as we sat through Mass that day. And this is a statue that I came across in one of the corners of the cathedral of Mary holding the broken body of Jesus at the foot of a cross. And I was really drawn to this picture as I prepared for this sermon, and I couldn't figure out why. Um, so I just tried to meditate on it throughout the weeks, and I even made it the background on my phone so I would just kind of see it more. Um, but it really didn't strike me, I think, of why this struck out to me so much until a couple days ago. Uh, it rained, and my beautiful, amazing wife, Shelby, who has amazing hand-eye coordination uh, and can walk great, took a little slide in the mud on the sidewalk right outside our house. She has a nice, great knee to show for it. Uh, if you ask her, she might show it to you. Um, and no, there's no cool skater or biker stories behind it. There was just mud, and she walked and slipped in it. <laughs> but after that happened, I came back to this photo and I noticed something about Jesus in the statue that I've never noticed before, even when I saw it in person. It was his knees. See, I think the artist's intention here is that they're scarred from when he's carrying the cross out of Jerusalem and up to Calvary, and he's hitting the ground and his knees are scraping the ground. I think we often talk about his hands, his side, even the crown of thorns piercing his head. But whoever talks about his knees... What incredible humility it must have taken to endure every scar he bore on his body. Utter humility. My friends, I think that is the posture we must have as we come to confess and receive absolution. Utter humility. Where every scar, even the ones no one else thinks about or remembers, is revealed to Jesus. The kind of humility where we recognize that we can't carry this cross alone anymore. And we need someone to come alongside us and bring us to the foot of the cross where we can find the forgiveness of sin and absolution that we desperately, desperately need. And the thing about the cross and confession and absolution in general is that when it's done, well, in the words of Jesus, it's finished. Jesus sees every scar. No matter the cause, no matter how small, it's not too insignificant. So my friends, my word to you today is to come and receive absolution. He's done it for us. As Zechariah reminds us from our prophetic reading this morning, he is our king, he is truly righteous, he is ruler and lord over all, and he is our restorer. He is able to meet you in whatever need, whatever cross you bear. Amen.